Hey everyone, this is Mike from Theology on Mission podcast. A little preamble here. Uh, this is a bit of a different episode than what we normally do. We invited our guest Brandon Robertson on the show. If you don't know Brandon, you'll get to know him here in the episode. And we wanted to have somebody on the show that has just different theological convictions than we have. So you'll get to hear in this episode Brandon's um, interaction and engagement with Fitch. So thanks again to Brandon for coming on and hope you enjoy the episode. Thanks for listening. Ladies and gentlemen, it's Dave Fitch and Mike Moore back at Northern Seminary on a beautiful Wednesday. Is Thursday. it Wednesday? No. Thursday afternoon with sunshine. Hey, Mike Moore, we had technical difficulties getting on today, but I had technical difficulties getting on today. You realize I had a flat tire? Con- I barely didn't make it to this. I do realize that. And I think I helped you troubleshoot what to do, right? I was going to call you, actually, because I was about a mile and a half up the road here. And I was going to call you. I'm going, oh, Mike Moore, he's so busy. By the way, ladies and gentlemen, there's a lot of things going on at Northern Seminary that are good. In light of all of the problems with leadership, I won't go into details. Everybody knows. Anyways, just just Google it. (laughs) But, man, and Mike Moore has taken over some responsibilities. He's doing a great job. Karen Walker-Freeberg acting president. We're so hopeful about Northern Seminary. But having said all that, I felt like I couldn't call the busy Mike Moore to have him come pick me up on the side of the road. So here's what I did. I pulled up to a gas station. I got like 20 pounds into the tire and it got me like, oh, three quarters of a mile. (laughs) I barely made it into the next station, put another $2.50 into one of those air machines, and I barely made it into the campus today. But folks, we overcame the flat tire. That's about all I can do with technology. Yes, Mike Moore, you did give me some suggestions. You're welcome. But we're just glad to be here. We're glad we made it. And we have a very special guest. That we, we do. One who spent time in Chicago. Yeah. And, and one who also said in previous banter before the podcast, he said Scott McKnight was his gateway drug out of evangelicalism. <laughs> Whoa! All right, Scotty. Now that's that's a heavy burden to bear, but we know that Scott can bear it. Folks, we welcome Brandon Robertson to the podcast. Now he's his CV and bio is so long, but he is a well-published author. I'm not only talking books on many publications as well. He's involved in many different social justice efforts. Says here he got his BA in pastoral ministry from Moody Bible Institute, which probably explains the Scott McKnight comment, by the way, uh, and and a Master of Theological Studies from Illith School of Theology, Master of Arts in Political Science from Eastern Illinois University. He's currently doing his Ph.D. in religion from Drew University. Ladies and gentlemen, I am exhausted just reading this bio. How, Brandon, did you accomplish all of that, and you're still only, mm, I'm saying, 28 well, th- thank you for that. I'm actually 62. But, uh, <laughs> oh, that's great. Uh, 
I'm coming up on 31, but yeah, no, it's been a busy 10 years of jumping into the theological world and figuring stuff out. And like you all, I love this stuff. I love getting to talk about Christian faith and how it relates to our modern world. And so that's what I'm up to these days. One question I have to ask you, Brandon, though, everybody I meet that went to Moody, I always ask, where did you do your PCM? Oh my goodness. Goodness. I did so many PCMs. I was at... uh, New Life Church in where Mark Job, the current president of Moody, is it was his congregation. Edgewater Baptist Church. I mean, I think every other semester I was in a new new church. So I got all around Chicago. Yeah, a a great nice. Yeah, for those who don't know, CM is Practical Christian Ministry. Is that what it is? Kind of an internship part about going to Moody, and I had a lot of PCMers do stuff with me back in the day. So nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, well, thanks, Mike Moore and Brandon for putting all 10 listeners to sleep with a PCM <laughs> reference because no one else knew what you were they talking about. Anyways, anyways, we, we, we want to welcome Brandon yes. to the show. Now, Brandon, we yesterday, and this is so cooperative and generous of you to offer your time, but yesterday you put out a tweet, and the tweet read like this. Just finished a paper doing a review of Christian teachings on premarital sex and masturbation from the first century to the modern era. The conclusion is there is no such thing as a consistent Christian sexual ethic. So that really piqued my interest because, of course, I teach in the area of ethics and culture. And I'd like, can, you, can we start off by just explaining that and then let's have some back and forth uh, what that might mean for us in the modern world. Yeah, totally. I mean, well, first of all, the tweet was intended to provoke conversation. And so it was worded in such a way that it did that. Uh, But I just concluded a class, which is one of many classes I've taken over the past 10 years on the history of sexuality and Christianity. But in this class and in the kind of first in the resources that we were able to look at, it became abundantly clear that this evangelical notion that there is a biblical sexual ethic that has remained consistent throughout the entirety of Christian history just isn't true. And while it is true that from after the time the New Testament was written, the first few centuries through about the Reformation, there is a solidifying of Christian positions, generally anti-sex in general. The fact is there has always been deviations from the idea that sex is only meant to be between one man, one woman in the context of heterosexual marriage for a lifetime. And on topics like masturbation, if you go all the way back to the Hebrew Bible, there is a lot of ambiguity about what the scriptures teach about masturbation, premarital sex. And so the whole point of the paper was just to say this myth of saying that there's been one ethic on these topics for all time is unhelpful, it's untrue, and when you actually look at the full history from the biblical times through the modern era, Christianity has always been wrestling with and responding to and reforming our positions and beliefs about sex and sexuality. And so I wanna call us to continue to be willing to look at modern science and psychology and other ways of interpreting our tradition to create sexual ethics that actually lead people towards wholeness rather than just clinging to a fake tradition that never actually existed and perpetuating beliefs that aren't helpful. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't want to put you on the spot here, but some people might want to read that paper. Are you going to make it available or? So here's the thing. This is going to sound so charlotte to me and I don't mean it to be, but I'm writing a book rethinking homosexuality, but also sexual ethics. And my publisher reached out and said, Hey, let's put that in the book. So 
wait one year, paper will be a chapter in this book. Oh, okay. J just FYI, ladies and gentlemen, you know, I got a book coming out in January on power and I had to go through some rigmarole with my publisher to publish any parts of that book too. But you can, Brandon, go through some rigmarole. You can push them a little bit and say, look, this is good for the pre-publication, raising awareness. You could do that, eh? You think that might be a possibility? I think what will likely happen is I'll write a short Substack article that gives a little glimpse of it and probably do some TikToks about it because I want people to engage with these actual documents that exist throughout Christian history rather than my interpretation of them. So my interpretation will wait until the book comes out, but I'll try to share some of the primary sources just so people see for themselves. Okay. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm sure Mike Moore and I will put Brandon's Substack on the notes for you to look at after this podcast. Now, let's talk a little bit about the, you called it a myth of a consistent, I would say static, Christian sexual ethic over time. Where, who, who actually, okay, I gotta, I gotta admit, this is very, very, very frustrating for me. Very frustrating. Did I say very? <laughs> very frustrating. The idea that there's a static anything in the history of Christianity. For instance, by the way, I got mad once at Pete Lightheart. He doesn't care if Fitch got mad at him, but he said there was no consistent evidence of pacifism at work in the early church before Constantine. Therefore, the Anabaptist thing that we, we say the first church was pacifist or nonviolent is a bunch of baloney. That's ridiculous. <laughs> Jesus comes into the world, he founds the community, he ascends to the right hand, and now we're trying to figure out how to live, and one of the things we confront is, in following Jesus in the way of the cross, is violence, coercion ever make sense? And sometimes it takes us a little time, maybe actually hundreds of years to figure that out. Same way with the sexual ethics. So my question to you, Brandon, is who believes, that, who believes this myth that there's just a static, delivered Christian ethic from heaven straight to the Pope, and the rest of us now got all the answers. Who believes this myth? Yeah, I think any of the audience could go ahead over to the Gospel Coalition's website or the Southern Baptist Ethic and Religious Liberty Commission or the Council on Biblical Manhood or Womanhood. Basically, all of conservative evangelicalism, at least the world that I come from, and a lot of the engagement I've had with them on the issue of homosexuality, which is where I spent most of my time working over the past decade, there's this refrain that you are deviating from this one true consistent ethic that has existed throughout the entirety of church history. And if you look on the comments on the tweet that I put out, the hundreds of Christians that respond think that my statement is absurd. Because as you say, most churches and most even theologians in the popular sphere are not teaching people about the diversity of Christianity, but feel like they need to create a myth of a singular unified version of Christianity in order to make any sorts of claims to authority or have any legitimacy. And it's just not historically accurate. There's always been Christianities, not a Christianity. There's always been different ethical perspectives. And that's what I'm interested in raising up for popular lay people to begin engaging with. Okay, so, yeah, can, can I term this to be, I'll call it the modern frame, the modern flat epistemology of 1958. 
uh, where the Bible somewhere in the 1920s and 30s got caricatured as inerrant, delivered, inspired, and has one interpretation. And all of this is kind of built around a very defensive evangelicalism. Okay, so I think we know about that. But, well, first of all, Brandon, did I kind of, I don't know, did that make sense, what I just said about the, the flat epistemology that a lot of us grew up in? And by the way, I do love Moody Bible Institute, but I do think that there's some of that going, maybe a lot of that going on at Moody, and a lot of that going on at other places that you already mentioned. But we do love them anyways, don't we, Mike Moore? But anyways, that epistemological statement, does that ring true for you? Totally. Yeah, I think it makes sense that in that moment of the fundamentalist modernist controversy, fundamentalism or evangelicalism, however you want to characterize it, felt like they needed to start making, frankly, absurd claims about the consistency of certain beliefs and ethics. And it's now we're in this moment where people all have access within 10 seconds of Googling to the divergent opinions that have always existed in Christian history. And it, I think, is one of the reasons that people are walking away from faith because we've made these outlandish claims that are now easily disprovable. And people are like, I've been lied to my whole life about what Christianity teaches. And it's just, it's not oh, historically accurate. Oh, that little phrase, I've been lied to. This, this is an endemic problem with the failure of fundamentalism to engage the fracturing of cultures in the, in the West, especially North America. So I love, I, I, I got to start taking notes on this because I'm learning so much, including gateway drug out of evangelicalism. But I digress. So let me now turn turn the direction of the conversation a little bit. I agree with the basic statement that Christianity, that who we are as Christians has been in development, even in progressive development, since the coming of Jesus, the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, and the birth of a people that follows Jesus. But, but that doesn't necessarily mean, does it, that there's no orthodoxy? Like, for instance, I'll give you an example, and then maybe you can play off this, Brandon. Like, like the Christology of Nicaea. Now, a good old event, I almost said a good old evangelical like me, sorry. And I didn't, and I am kind of like an evangelical, but not in the way, never mind, I won't go into that right now. We, we digress. <laughs> but I, now I forgot what I was going to say. Oh, yeah. Okay. The working out of the Nicene Creed and the, Ni the Chalcedon Christology, Jesus is both God and man, human, and that homo usian and all that stuff, even though it's heavily Greek metaphysics, and so us Anabaptists get a little prickly about it, there's still something there that was worked out that endures through various contexts that we might call orthodoxy. So we don't get to say, oh, you know what, Jesus was sometimes God, sometimes human, sometimes sometimes he was, I don't want to be blasphemous, but you know what I'm trying to say. How do you, how do you respond to that statement that even though there are variations of Christianity, there is still an orthodoxy at work in and through history? Yeah, so I mean, putting my cards on the table, I am generally anti-orthodoxy. I'm very critical of the idea of orthodoxy, just in the sense that I don't believe those creeds and the councils that created them, and I don't think those are infallible councils at all. And I do think it's a strange thing that we, as Christians, have said, okay, these councils that were largely convened under 
the power of an emperor to unify Christianity. They essentially debate and vote on what the doctrines for the entire church are. And then that becomes Christian orthodoxy for the rest of history. I think that's worth being, it's worth critiquing or at least critically examining what happened there and why we accept those things. One thing I will say though, is topics of sexual ethics, I don't, I'm not aware of any creed or council that other than some basic stuff around marriage, beyond that, when we get into sexual expression, none of the creeds or councils address that. And so topics of sexuality and gender and all of these things are just have historically not been issues of Christian orthodoxy, whereas things like Christology and Trinitarian theology have. And so that's a distinction I would want to make. Okay, so, but after you make that distinction, okay, here's a distinction I'd like to make. I think the difference between you, Brandon, and me is I see the way orthodoxy being worked out. It's worked out over time in history with many bumps along the way with many detours and many mistakes. Like, for instance, I think you're talking like a good Anabaptist, I don't know, when you say, Constantine enforced a unity on the church. Yeah, we Anabaptists like to see the unity of the church come from below and up, not top down. But still, there's orthodoxy being worked out within history. So sexual ethics shouldn't be looked upon as a set of commands, a set of rules, a set of in, I don't know, in, written in cement for all time. It's, there is development, but there is still I, what I would call wisdom acquired over time. Virtues, understandings of what it means to follow Jesus in relation to our bodies and marriage and creation. Comments on, on, comments on the distinction between wisdom and set in time rules. Yeah, well, as a good, again, classical, liberal, progressive Christian, I, I totally agree. I think looking to the Bible for rigid rules around most things is unhelpful, and it's going to lead us into either unhelpful and harmful practices, or at least very legalistic practices. I do think the scripture teaches wisdom and principles around topics like sexuality that we should apply. For instance, one I always reference, I speak primarily to an LGBT audience, and I'm always reminding us that Paul talks about everything being permissible, but not everything being beneficial. And so let's think about sexual ethics in those terms. Sure, there are many things you could do, but are those things helpful? Are they leading to your flourishing? Are they leading towards what sex is intended to lead you towards? Throughout history, you're right. There's always been a conversation around sexuality. There, after the kind of Constantinian era, there are some general principles that become accepted. But then by the time we get to the Protestant Reformation, the reformers take a wrecking ball to a lot of what had become established Christian sexual ethic for a thousand years by that point. And so I think the conversation I want to have and the point I want to raise is sexual ethics have always been a point of conversation from the Hebrew Bible, which has instances of arguably premarital sex that is looked upon positively like that with Ruth to the ethics of the apostle Paul, who says marriage is essentially a sign of weakness for those who can't control their sexual passion. And he wishes everybody would remain celibate like he is. There's a conversation and debate about what sexual ethics look like and what the best way of living them out is and 
I just want to encourage us to continue to have that debate because we live in a day where we do have a lot more information about human psychology, about our bodies, should at least cause Christians to be willing to engage in conversation around what is good and helpful and what is not. All right. I'm, I'm going to, I think you and I, I think we're all, I think we agree on most of that. I don't think I heard anything I disagreed with. So, and not that I'm, not that I'm trying to disagree or anything. I'm just trying to figure out how to, how to go forward in this. Here, so this would help me if I could do this, Brennan. All right, so we know that 1 Corinthians 5, some guy was sleeping with his father's mother or something, and Paul said, for goodness sakes, you idiot. I don't think he said idiot, but, you know, don't you understand your, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit somewhere around? Don't you understand that when you're united with, with another body, you are one and all this kind of stuff. So there's, there's some stuff going on there. Now, now, my question is to you is, there, there was a definite development over time of this idea of monogamy amongst Christians, over against polygamy and the other various Greco-Roman practices. There was a, there was a, understand, they came to the solid conclusion that this, this was now possible in Jesus Christ. So question. Is monogamy a good piece of wisdom, an outworking of what it means to be a Christian, or, or is that up for conversation? I would say yes, and yes, I think monogamy is generally the standard that most people should be aiming towards. And when I was pastoring a church in San Diego, I made some waves because I did a Ask Anything session one Sunday, and a polyamorous thruple wrote a question about, are we welcome back to this community? And my response was, from a biblical perspective, there's no clear indicator about how many people are in a relationship. I think monogamy is historically the standard we should all be aiming for. And if you have figured out a way in which you have a relationship with three people that are equal in the relationship and in love with one another, and you are trying to follow Jesus, you are welcome in our community and we're glad that you're here. And so again, I live in a very unique context, I think primarily ministering among LGBTQ people. And so a lot of these questions come up in ways that might not happen for a lot of other people in non-queer contexts. For my context, I think these are conversations that need to happen because people are asking these questions. And I do think if we're honest, the Bible is not very black and white or clear about a number of people in relationships. And I think that's just something I have to say as an honest arbiter of the text. That's true. Right. Okay, so you you and I disagree on this, and I don't want to start proof texting. <laughs> well, frank, frankly, Brandon's from, or at least graduated from Moody Bible, and so he's going to win that one. I, I just know, because my, my proof textings, my, I'm not, anyways, not that I don't want him to win, okay, folks, but he, he'll win on the proof texting. My, my reference verse, chapter and verse skills have gone way down. And I blame it all on my age. But anyways, you know, Paul or the Apostle Paul, or depending on who you think wrote the pastorals, says, elder be husband of one wife, you know, things like that. There's a long history here of the church working out. And I think actually it had a lot to do with the churches in spots and spaces working out against misogyny, ruling against the normativity of, of polygamy for all those reasons. And, and this just goes to show you folks, we, we gotta reteach sexual ethics all over again as the wisdom 
of God as revealed in Jesus Christ, as worked out and made possible in the life in Jesus Christ, not just as a set of rules to impose on, on a culture that frankly doesn't have any idea what we're talking about. So let me... Just, just to comment yes. on that, though, just to make a quick distinction, polygamy and polyamory, very different. So I agree with you. I think the Bible leans towards an egalitarian approach and there's a general movement away from misogyny and patriarchy in the scripture. I'm with you there. Polyamory is a more modern concept, is not a man with multiple wives, but usually it takes many gen gender configurations and is entered upon multiple people equally entering into a relationship. Again, it's a rarity. This is an exception, not the rule, but I do bring it up just to say that this is a conversation that is happening in queer and progressive Christian context. One, one day in the probably distant future, we could do a podcast and unwind the multiple layers of meaning, purpose, understandings of bodies that would go into this constellation polyamory, but we don't have time to do that today. In fact, we're running out of time as I speak. So let me get to one more question. This has been great, Brandon, because I think you and I are, are probably different in a lot of ways on what we think about this or that, but we're also, there's a lot of agreement. Like what you just said there, about the progressive work within the scripture against misogyny and patriarchy, I am absolutely 100% convinced of, but not everybody is because they have a flat epistemology in the way they see the Bible. But anyways, I won't, oh, one last question. Okay, I think I saw in a tweet somewhere, darn it, my notes are, okay, sex is good, sexuality is good. This is a tweet by you. God created it and called it good. Stop believing that it's something bad, shameful, and wrong. Okay, so why why the need to even and and I I'm 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 provoking here. Why the need to even say that? Yeah, the need to say that is because in the past three years, I started a kind of TikTok ministry and I have gotten to engage with hundreds of thousands of Christian young people who many of them are leaving the church and the number one reason i hear people say they're leaving the church is based on sexual shame sexual violence sexual abuse things that the church has either taught or done that have corrupted people's understanding of sex and caused people to live within a great deal of shame related to sex and after studying christian history for this paper around sex and sexuality the one thing that i think we can probably agree on is that the vast majority of teachers throughout history have talked pretty negatively about sex. It's a post-Reformation reality that sex started being talked about in positive ways, but most writers, and I would say influenced by Greek Stoicism and Hellenistic philosophy, viewed the body and sex in almost a Gnostic way, where it was demonized, it was dangerous. I think, even if we disagree on the outworking of sexual ethics, one thing that I would like to see conservatives, progressives, and everybody in between agree on is that we need to reclaim sex and sexuality as a good thing, reclaim sexual pleasure as a good thing, as a gift from God, because that is not historically the posture the church has taken. And so many churches continue to teach that sexual pleasure and sex should be really relegated to a shameful realm in our lives. And that causes, again, a lot of people to not only deal with their own personal shame, but once they realize that sex isn't a shameful thing, when they engage in it, they, are, they feel like they've been lied to by the church again, and they walk away. Yeah, 
And I see this, this whole shame, sex is bad thing in the modern context as the effort of the church. And I might add, I think maybe even well-meaning, at least by some sectors of the church, to, to keep young people from going off the rails and getting trashed in all the sexual mess of our times. But in doing so, there was coercion. If you do this, it's something. Or if you do this, then. Or if you don't do this, you're going to. Or if you do do this, you're going. And it's all very coercive, very meant to force compliance. And, of course, we know where that all leads. As good Anabaptists, it always goes wrong. This is not the way God works. I want to say to everybody out there who's teaching their kids, and I got a teenager, teaching their kids about sex, don't use that method. Use questions and, and, and open up space for what is this going to mean? What does it mean to follow Jesus with your body? What does it mean to respect that other body? What does it mean to see purposes and, and orientation in your body towards purposes of God, etc., etc.? Don't chastity, the, the wisdom of no sex before marriage is not written in the Bible, at least as far as I know. And I think Brandon has made this point. On it. Um, sometimes I feel the urge to just go back and read it very carefully all over again and, and find spaces. But, but the theology of pornea, or, or the, I should say the sex, sexuality of pornea is actually something Paul works really hard to show how that is not the way of Jesus and so we need to disciple our kids, understanding this is wisdom that comes out of following Jesus. Chastity is shapes a virtue towards faithfulness. Not It's not a recipe for how you're going to have the best sex you ever had in your life, according to Hollywood to 101. Anyways, I digress. Here's my question for you, Brandon, and all this. Sorry, I, I don't normally talk this much, do I, Mike Moore? <laughs> Well, point. to be fair, he's going to say yes, you do, Dave. But no, before we started this, I told Dave, I said, "Hey, just just take it over because you have more questions than I do." Sure. All right. Well, thanks, thanks for being so generous, Mike. So, so my last question, because we we are already over time. Yes, sex is created good, but my problem with reformed thinkers, especially Kuyperian reformed thinkers, especially. Well, I won't even go where they where they are, but you've probably been under the influence of them in your prior educational life, Brandon. My problem is, oh, we need to go back to Genesis 1. We, pro- we, we, we have spent too much time in Genesis 3. Well, I agree, but the fact is Genesis 3 happened, and so now creation is post-fall, and we d- can anybody not see all the things, all the abuse, all the patriarchy, all the misogyny, all the sexualization, all of the sin, if I can put, put that word on it, at work in our sexuality in this country. And so we need, we need something that guides us through this mess to follow Jesus, to see sex redeemed. And so sometimes I fear, and this will be the last question, Brandon, sometimes I fear by going back to Genesis 1, we ignore just how bad things are out there. As someone who lived needed to get saved all over again, who lived in Wall Street, and all the, the way women are mistreated, misogynized, sexualized, oh, and what it does to you, I'm aware of what sin can do in sex. And so I'll give Augustine the break. I'll say, yeah, you really messed it up for the rest of us, but man, 
I see where it can go wrong too. Do you have any comments on that, Brandon? I absolutely agree with you. I think obviously if we sat down and listed our sexual ethics, we're probably going to come out in some different places. I don't think, for instance, premarital sex is always or objectively sinful and things like that. However, I agree that biblical wisdom, ancient wisdom that has guided our Christian tradition for 2000 years should not be jettisoned just because popular culture has come up with different sexual ethics. And in this new book I'm writing, the whole last third portion of the book is writing, it is articulating what I call a conscious sexuality, a sexuality where we're actually thinking through what we're doing, why we're doing it, what values we hold, how our faith informs those values rather than the sexuality that I do think is rampant in our culture, which is precisely what Paul wrote against, which is whenever you have an urge, act on it. That's what I experienced. I just moved to New York City nine months ago and I see it all around me. And I do think Christians have a really unique calling in this moment to say there's a difference and a better way to express sexuality. And it's rooted in deep thinking about our individual ethics and deep thinking about how God created our bodies. Again, my version of these ethics leads me to a slightly different place than most traditional Christians. But nonetheless, I still think we would agree that there are guardrails that are helpful, that our society is actually longing for, and the church is an opportunity to step up and speak into this. All right, all right. That's, that's extremely helpful. Folks, we've run out of time. I want to give thanks to Brandon for being with us. Brandon, I hope you and I have a chance to have a brew sometime when I'm, I think we're going to be in New York in August. So, I mean, if, if, our, if time overlaps, I'd love to have share a beverage with you and get to know you a little better. So thanks again for being here. Give us the name of your Substack again one more time, Brandon. It's Nomad Notes. It's the Substack. Okay. And where we can find you on Twitter is? At Brandon J-R, but the name is B-R-A-N-D-A-N-J-R. All right. Plug into his work. It, it will be fruitful and thought-provoking for you. Mike, could you have a final word for the podcast, folks, today? Uh, yeah, just to kind of keep reminding people, June 8th and June 9th, Sarah Coakley is coming here to Northern Seminary. So if you have not got your tickets, get your tickets. I think breakfast is sold out, but we're looking forward to having her and hosting a bunch of people. Brandon wants to come. We'll get him we in. We'll get you in. I'm actually in Chicago those days. Come on so. over. Come oh, on. Come on over. And, and. By the way, Sarah Coakley's work, of course, is positive towards Gregory of Nyssa in a way towards sexuality that some of the others that you mentioned weren't. So there's another source for us for this podcast. Folks, we hope you give us a good review on whatever platform you listen to this podcast. It's been great to be with you. We're going to have a lot, of, a lot more guests before we take a break during the summer, so we hope to see you in future podcasts. Until then, it's Dave Fitch Wait and more. over and out.